Paul lived there for two whole years in his own rented quarters and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete boldness and without restriction. The end. You're like, that's really abrupt. Yes, it is. For two whole years, from 60 to 62 AD, Luke records that Paul was allowed to live on his own. He rented his own place, paid for it. So obviously he was maintaining his tent making business. Um, we saw that he refuses to take people, money from people to earn a living and that kind of stuff. And his doors with some kind of a praetorian guard 24-7 by him all the time. His house was always open to everybody without restriction, which is another way of saying even the Jews kept coming to him. Everybody. Free, slave, wealthy, poor, male, female, Jew, Gentile, sick, healthy, all social statuses were welcome. All came, door always open, without restrictions, constantly preaching the gospel. People from all the categories came to Christ, and most likely people from all the categories chose not to. And this is how the book of Acts ends. And the idea is the gospel is still going out and still going. However, this brings us to two very big questions as this book ends very abruptly. The first question is, what happened to Paul after Acts? Was he vindicated by Nero? Was he executed? Did he go somewhere else? And the second question is, what about the trial before Caesar? Like, everything has been revving up towards this, and they're like, we didn't even get to see him go before Caesar. We didn't even hear him preach. We got, we got all these chapters of him preaching before these minor Roman officials. And then we get to the, like the big man, the big dog himself, and we get nothing. We, multiple times Jesus says, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. Shouldn't we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in the book of Acts? And those are the questions. So that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with the first question first. And then we're going to deal with the second question. Now, I have no absolute, total, this is the answer. But we're going to deal with those issues in this kind of a sense. Some say, answering the first question, what happened to Paul after Acts? Some say that Luke was writing Acts at the time that Paul was in custody in Rome and the story caught up with Luke. Therefore, he did not know what happened after that because it had not happened yet. Luke is writing, and the events of now, like he's sitting in like somewhere around 61 or whatever AD or 62, and he's writing and writing and writing, and he comes to that point, he's like, and then two years went by, and Paul was sitting in there, and he's like, I don't know anything else that happens because it's now. And so the end. Others say that Luke died, and so he wasn't able to finish it. And so these are two common things that come up. But there's, there's multiple problems with this. First, Acts 28 verse 30 indicates that there were two years after the story of Acts and Luke knew what happened in those two years and that something happened after them. It's very clear that he knows two years have gone by. Things are happening in those two years. We know that he wrote many of his letters during this time period. And, and, and Luke, we're told later that Luke visited him in Colossians and Philemon. And, and Colossians was written during this time period. And Luke is visiting him. So Luke would know about this stuff. And it's obviously he didn't die because he knows about what's happening. 
And he implies that he knows what happened after those two years too. He knows that something happened. That defeats both those arguments. If he's telling you, I know what happened those two years, and I knew that something happened after those two years, then it's not that the story caught up with him, and it's not that he died. That means he's intentionally choosing not to record it. This is an authorial decision that he has made, and he's okay with it. Second, Acts 27 verse 24 makes it clear that Luke knew that Paul appeared before the Roman emperor. So he knew enough to write about it. So he knows that he appeared before the Roman emperor, which means he knows what happened. And he knows how it turned out, but he didn't record it. Third, Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 and Acts 1 1 suggests that a emperor Um, that a good amount of time separates the time of Luke writing the book and the events of the book. Both of these sections, the very beginning of Luke that he wrote and the very beginning of Acts that he wrote part two, makes it very clear that he wrote these books much, many years after all the events. That this is something you look back on and record other kind of things. Those first two views that Luke just doesn't know what happened because... It's now the present day for him, or that he died, doesn't, that doesn't work in any kind of a way. The vast majority of scholars reject those two propositions. Some say that Paul was executed. That this is the point where he went before Nero, and Nero said, eh, and then decided to kill him for his gospel message, for whatever reason that the, the, the Jews showed up and brought these charges against him in some kind of way. And that Luke just, just simply doesn't explain it. Maybe it was too hard for him to recover or talk about it or whatever, whatever, whatever. And he just doesn't talk, record it. This also is not likely since many of Paul's letters make it clear that he went on to other places in Rome and Empire and wrote letters from those locations. We know for a fact from Paul's many other letters that while Paul was in custody in Rome during these two years, that Luke mentions in chapter 28, verse 30, that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are often called the prison letters, where he was in prison in Rome. So he wrote during this time, Colossians of which, and Philemon of which, Luke is both mentioned in those, as I mentioned earlier, as visiting Paul during those time periods. After his release and departure from Rome, he wrote the pastoral letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus sometime between 63 and 66 AD. Paul spoke of meeting Timothy in Ephesus later in 1st Timothy chapter 3. So his letters make it very clear that he spent from 60 to 62 AD in Rome in prison. And then in 62, he was released from prison as a free man. He did stand before Nero, and Nero released him. Now, you might say, well, we know, he's, we, we know he stood before Nero because Jesus told him he was going to stand before Nero and preach the gospel, and all of God's prophecies come true. We know he stood before there. So somewhere around 62, he was released from prison, and we know that he wrote the pastoral letters of 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, between 63 and 66 AD. Though that's clear from those letters, those writings and that kind of stuff. So that means he was not executed at this time. It also means that he was set free in 62 AD. The vast majority of scholars also reject that idea of Paul being executed 
somewhere around 62 AD. Most scholars, the vast majority of scholars, believe that Paul stood before Caesar and then after two years in custody, the charges against him were dismissed and he was released in 62 AD. Many times, Luke has made it clear that Paul was not guilty of any crime under the Roman law and that many Roman officials said that he was guilty of no crime. The charges against him had to do with Jewish law and theology to that there was no evidence against him, nor anyone from Jerusalem to press charges to testify. Most likely, nobody wanted to make that expensive trip to Rome just to press charges against Paul, knowing that if the people in Israel who understood Judaism, Herod Agrippa and Festus and all that kind of stuff, or Felix more likely, Festus was kind of ignorant, if they didn't even agree with the Jews and press charges. There's no way that Nero, who's completely disconnected from the Jews, cares nothing about the Jews in any kind of way, and the heart of Roman Empire and law would plead in their behalf. And we're talking about thousands upon thousands of dollars in modern-day terminology for them to make that trip for multiple people just to bring a, a, a total lost cause. They knew it was a lost cause when they hired the lawyer to speak eloquently in the first month of the trials, let alone two years later in a Roman Empire with an emperor who cares not about Jewish in any kind of way. So the fact that there's no charges brought up means that Annie survived the storm. He survived the storm. We talked about that, that every reader reading this would see this as a vindication of Yahweh because you always die in the storm when you're under the judgment of God. And he didn't. And in even the Greek mythology with the stories of Odysseus and that kind of stuff, it, you, the gods are punishing you. If you survive it, you've been vindicated. Over and over and over again, Luke has been making it clear with multiple literary devices that Paul is not guilty. Roman official after Roman official has declared that he's not guilty. It's been very clear over and over and over again that Rome finds none of these charges legitimate in any kind of way. Yahweh has declared him vindicated and not guilty in the Jewish and Christian mindset. And even the Roman gods, so to speak, in a Greek paganism kind of a way, reading this book have declared Paul not guilty in any kind of a way. So Nero coming up later and declaring him not guilty is just not necessary in any kind of a way. It's, at this point, it's clear that if God and the gods and all the Roman officials and all of Roman law says that there's no validity to this in any kind of a way, there's no way that Nero is going to say anything different. No way. Plus, Nero at this time was still under the tutelage of the great Roman philosopher, the Stoic Seneca, and, and the, the head of the Praetorian Guard, Aphronius Burroughs. Aphronius, Aphronius would have known who Paul was because he was the head of the Praetorian Guard and the Praetorian Guard were responsible for guarding Paul from 60 to 62 AD. So he'd be familiar with Paul. He probably even had Paul preach the gospel to him. And both these two men, especially Seneca, preached leniency and clemency as great virtues in the law. And so if it's clear to the gods and the Roman law that Paul is guilty of nothing, his accusers have not shown up in any kind of a way. They don't care about the Jews. And they are already tutoring Nero to be lenient when it comes to the law. Nero let him go. Nero let him go. He's been freed. And this is clear from the context. 
Most likely, most scholars believe that Paul would have been arrested again sometimes after 64 AD. We know from his writings that he was rearrested and that he was executed by the Roman government. But it's around 64 AD that the famous Nero going insane, the fire in Rome happened, he blamed it on the Christians, and when he blamed on the Christians, persecution got dialed up to a thousand percent. And this is the beginning of like Roman Empire spread persecution. And when Domitian comes in later, he's going to ramp it up another thousand percent. And so is 64 AD that the famous historical persecution of Christians um, being killing them, hunting them down, throwing them into the gladiator pits, being fed by lions, being impaled and covered in tar and lit up on fire, all that stuff is going to start amping up big time. And it is at that time that Nero is going insane. At that time, Aphronius has died. Seneca is no longer tutelaging him. Nero is insane. He can't be talked to. And so most likely Paul was rearrested and executed. And so this is what most scholars believe, that Paul was in prison from 60 to 62 AD. He stood before Nero. Nero released him based on everything we've talked about. He went off. He traveled around the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world, and he wrote the pastoral letters. He visited Timothy. He continued to spread the gospel. Nero started going insane. He made an official Roman policy to start killing and wiping out the Christians, meaning everything that Luke argued for in Luke and Acts meant nothing. Not that it didn't accomplish anything. It just meant nothing for convincing Rome to not persecute them. And that, that Paul was later rearrested, and then he was executed at that time, sometime after between 64 and 66 AD. This is also the time that all the other disciples start dropping like flies. Peter gets crucified upside down, some get beheaded, and they just all start dying. And then John is put on the island of Patmos and imprisoned there and that kind of stuff. So everything starts kind of filing up there. Worthington says this, The words of Eusebius, who was a church, an early church father, though from a much later era, should not be ignored or dismissed, since they are based on earlier traditions. He states, Tradition has it that after defending himself, the apostle was again sent on the ministry of preaching, and coming a second time to the same city, suffered martyrdom under Nero. The second, the second time in the city, meaning Rome. We have said this to show that Paul's martyrdom was not accomplished during the sojourn in Rome, which Luke describes. This is also what the much earlier testimony Clement of Rome, another earlier church father, suggests, and one would think that he was in a perfect position to know what transpired. This text may in fact suggest Paul was exiled, perhaps in the West, in A.D. 62, but that in any case he preached at the foremost reaches of the West, which likely means Spain, a place Paul stated in Romans 15.24 that he wished to reach. And Paul's ultimate goal, according to Romans, was to set up a western base in Rome and make it all the way to Spain. Most likely, this is what happens. Okay, so what happened to Paul? That's what happened to Paul. As you put the church fathers together, the other writings of Paul together, what Luke has hinted at in the last verses of Acts is very clear that Paul was in prison between 60 and 62 A.D., stood before Nero, Nero released him, he went out preaching through the Mediterranean, Nero went insane, 
All this stuff started happening in 64. Paul was rearrested somewhere around 64 to 66 AD and executed by 66 AD again back in Rome. Vast majority of scholars. The historical details just seem to be indisputable in a lot of ways. I mean, we can't hold it with an iron fist and say 100%, but the, the breadcrumbs are very obvious. The puzzle pieces are very clear here. That does not answer the second question, though. Why did Luke not record the trial? Why ended it so abruptly? Why couldn't he at least just spend one or two sentences and say, and he stood before Caesar, he fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus, he preached the gospel, many in the palace received it, Nero didn't, and then he was released. He could at least spend a little bit of time that. We don't like abrupt endings. That's not the way that Westerners write a lot of times. But this is not the first book to end abruptly like this. This is not an uncommon thing in Jewish writings. The book of Kings ends very abruptly. In the book of Kings, the Nebuchadnezzar has come and taken Judah off into exile in 586. The last chapter records him coming three times. In 605, he arrests Jehoiachin, the second to last king, of Judah, appoints Zedekiah, the last king, to be king, and he carries Jehoiachin and his entire family, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, off into exile. And then we're told that he then kills Zedekiah and destroys all of Jerusalem. And then we're not told anything about Nebuchadnezzar or Jerusalem. And the last paragraph says, and Amal Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar's son one day releases Jehoiachin from prison in Babylon and sets him at his own table, Amal Marduk, the king of Babylon's table, and makes him family and allows him to eat there every single day for the rest of his life and even gives him an allowance. The end. That's an abrupt ending. The point of kings in abrupting quickly is that God made a prophecy and a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And then all the prophets reiterated that promise in Ezekiel chapter 11 and Jeremiah 31, 31 and Micah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 4 and go on and on that one day he would restore them back to the promised land. And when they've all been wiped out in Jerusalem, only a few have survived and gone to exile. The, the, God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his throne would go on forever. His descents would go on forever. And now this guy, Jehoiachin, the descendant of David, is in prison. God ends that book by saying, and he was released and sit on the table. And even though we're in the very beginning of the darkest days of Israel, exile outside the land, and that's going to be another 60-something years, I'm giving you one little glimmer of hope that the king was released from prison and sit at the table. I will fulfill my promises. The book of Jonah ends abruptly. Jonah in the last chapter says, See God, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate, merciful God, willing to forgive them. And I didn't want them to be forgiven. I wanted them to all die and burn. In fact, I'm going to get a seat on a cliff, front row, and watch them die, just in case maybe they didn't legitimately repent. And God says, You care more about this vine that grew up in one day and died than you do about these people made in the image of God, who are ignorant of morality, 
Should I not be care, care more about this 120,000 people than a ding-dong vine? And the book ends. Did Jonah repent? Don't know. Now, in that case, the point is, you're Jonah. And the question is, what materialistic things do you care about more than people who do not know the difference of right and wrong or are dying and not going to heaven? Books ending abruptly don't end abruptly when you understand the major argument the book is making. And when you understand what the author is arguing for and why he's telling the story, then it ending abruptly does not feel weird. It makes the point. There are many movies that end very abruptly. And if you understand what the director is trying to do, you're like, ooh, yes, I would really like to know what happens to them because I've become attached to the characters. But at the same time, that made the point so well. So what's the point? If you believe that the main purpose of Luke is a biography of the life of Paul, then this is a crappy ending. He has failed to accomplish his purpose. The very thing that everything in the biography of Paul has been leading to, the trial, he does not talk about and he doesn't discuss. But that's not the purpose of facts. The purpose is how the gospel spread throughout the world. And if you understand that that's the major argument, then that makes sense. Because has the gospel spread throughout the world? Yes. The idea is if it makes it to Rome, it's made it to the rest of the world. If we can get all the way to the Roman Empire, up into the Roman palace before the Roman Caesar, then there's nothing that can stop this. If all of Rome can't stop it, trial after trial after trial says he's vindicated. Storm after storm says he's vindicated. Viper after viper says he's vindicated. If we get through all of that and make it to Rome, then it's a done deal. The rest of the world is ready. And that's the point. The, the, the biggest anti-God political powerhouse in the entire world is Rome. And if Rome does not and cannot stop the gospel, no other political powerhouse will. And that's the point. Why do we not need a trial? Well, maybe because it was boring. <clears throat> I mean, there was somewhat, to admit in my human nature, some of the trials that we've already gone through with Felix and Festus was kind of boring. And now we're just going to rehash the exact same things over again. Why do we need to have it all be told to us again when we saw with Felix and Festus and Agrippa. We already know what's going to happen. He's going to preach the gospel. Some will accept it. Some will not. They will say he's not guilty of any Roman law, and they will release him. We don't need that. We've already been told that he's not guilty according to the storm and the viper and that kind of stuff. For Luke, he's like, what's the point? At this point, where paper is expensive and precious, and books can only get so big before you have to go to another scroll. Why waste my time recording something that we already know is going to happen and is not going to make any other point, right? Have you ever been with people where they make their point and they keep making it and keep making it and keep making it? And we're all guilty of that, right? Some people are more guilty than others. You're like, okay, you made the point already. My, my middle daughter is guilty of this. We're like, okay, yes, Cassie, we get it. Okay, you've made your point. But why do that? It's one thing when people do it in words. It's another thing when you're going to read it. It just seems even more 
when you realize that the whole point of this is the spread of the gospel, he's made his point. He's made his point. In fact, most likely another reason why he's ending it so abruptly is so that you don't get hung up on that it's a biography of Paul. We already have a horrible, nasty tendency of putting Paul up on a pedestal in the modern-day American church. I can't speak for the whole world. And that we make too much about Paul. In fact, one of the reasons that I have not done a letter of Paul is because I have spent most of my life in church hearing about Paul's letters. I have many messages, Paul's letters. I wanted to do things that we don't hear about, like James and John and and, and Peter and Hebrews and Jude. And I'm not saying that every church is guilty of that, just the American church as a whole. Luke might be intentionally ending it here to just make the point that this has not been about Paul. It didn't start with Paul. And it's not going to end with Paul. And the last point that he makes is, no one was rejected. All came without restrictions. And they all heard the gospel. The final words out of his mouth is, people are hearing the gospel. Not like, and Paul was, da 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 In that sense, this abrupt ending makes sense. It's still abrupt. It still grinds against the American nature of wanting to know how everything works and how everything ends. And don't get me wrong, I like that. I'm a history major. I want to know these things. I love stories. But the abrupt ending makes sense when you put it in the context of the major argument of the book. It's not a biography of Paul. It's not a biography of Peter. It's not a biography of Stephen or Philip or anybody. It's how the gospel spread throughout the world. And Luke accomplished that purpose. And the major purpose they had along with that, the secondary, was to help the Roman Empire realize that the gospel has no malice or ill intent or is contrary to the Roman law or authority or government in any kind of a way. And he has accomplished that. The minute the storm vindicates Paul, it doesn't matter what Nero says. The gods have spoken, and Paul is innocent. That's why it ends in such a way. Tanhill says this, Luke Acts is basically a story about a mission. Acts chapter 28, verse 28 comments on the mission's future. The narrative prepares for this comment by reports of the Gentiles' friendly response to Paul on the voyage and the Roman Jews' contrasting response. When we recognize that the careful reflection on the possibilities of mission among both Gentiles and Jews in Acts chapter 27 through 28, the impression that the ending of Acts is about, abrupt, and unsuitable is considerably reduced. Remember, over and over and over again, Paul has even made the point, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. It's to the Jews and to the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles. Most of the time, we don't even get his speeches. There's only three recorded speeches of Paul in all these chapters from 13 to 28. Most of the time, it's just Paul preached, and the Jews accepted, and some did not, and the Gentiles came, it's always been about the spread of the gospel of the Jews and the Gentiles. When you realize that this is what it's about, and even Paul's last final speech is, I want you to accept it, Isaiah chapter 6, but you're not going to listen, and it's going to go to the Gentiles. And you put that in the context that all came without restriction and heard the gospel. That's the main point. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit to the Jews 
and to the Gentiles. Longnecker says this, and seeming to leave this book unfinished, he, Luke, was implying the apostolic proclamation of the gospel in the first century began a story that will continue until the consummation of the kingdom in Christ. And that's the other point, too, that he might be doing. Not just to make the point that the gospel has spread to Rome, therefore nothing can stop it. I'm not going to end on what happened to Paul so you don't put him up on a pedestal and think this is all about him. But three, it's not over with. Just like it moved. It started with Peter, right? It started with all the disciples. And with no passing the baton, Luke then gradually moves into Peter. No, like, what happened to Matthew? What happened to John? None of that. It just all somewhere on Peter. No smooth transitions, no nothing. It abruptly, we're done with the disciples, and we're on Peter. And then abruptly, we're done with Peter, and we're on Stephen. And then abruptly, we're done with Stephen, and we're with Philip. Abruptly, we're done with Philip, and back to Peter again. And then abruptly, we're done with Peter, and we're, done with, we're on Paul. And abruptly, we're with Barnabas, and then we're done with him. We're never told what happened to Barnabas. We're never told what happened to Peter. We're never told what happened to, well, Stephen, we did. Philip, we're never told what happened. We meet him a few years later in Caesarea, but it just, he has daughters who prophesied. That's it. Other than Stephen's death, we have, we have abruptly ended on every single figure in the book of Acts. And now we abruptly end on Paul. And all it's done is move to the next person, the next person, with, abruptly with no transitions and no explanation as to why we're just on the next person. And now we end with Paul. And if you follow that pattern, one can assume, now we're on to you. And when you're done and you die, abruptly that will come and you'll go on to the next person. And then so forth and so forth and so forth. And the point is that the gospel is still going. The book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, is still being written out. And just like we acknowledge that the canon of the Bible of revelation from God has been sealed with the 66 books in its finalization of revelation, yet the story of what God is doing has not come to an end. All these books make it clear when Peter calls you to keep going out, when revelation calls you to, makes it very clear that the canon of the Bible is closed. There is no new revelation but the story of what God is doing is not done. It continues in us. The story of Acts is closed, but its abrupt ending is that just like it ends abruptly, that there will be more kings of Israel at the end of kings because God made a promise. You are the Jonah. What will you do? Because it ends abruptly. Acts ends abruptly and says, you are the next apostle. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? In conclusion, the main focus of the book of Acts was on giving an account of how the gospel spread from the Jewish world of Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the Gentile world of the Roman Empire. Acts 1.8 Luke begins where he, his previous book, the gospel Luke, let off with the resurrection of Jesus, which makes possible the coming of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, in fulfillment of scriptures. It is the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that makes the spread of the gospel possible, despite all opposition. Through the many speeches, Luke emphasizes the first main point of the gospel, that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection makes salvation possible, as the scripture had prophesied and are the hope of Israel's restoration from exile, as Yahweh had promised. 
is through, it is through not only the speeches in the book, but mostly the ministries of Peter, Philip, and Paul, and Barnabas, and Paulus, and others, that Luke emphasizes the second main point, that the gospel is for the Jews and the Gentiles, to not only restore the Jews back to Yahweh, but to bring unity between the two groups as one new covenant people of Yahweh. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has torn down the barrier wall between God and humanity, between Jew and Gentile, so we may all be unified as one people. Though the gospel was for the Jews first, it was not because of the Gentiles were second-class citizens in the kingdom of Yahweh, but because the Jews were chosen in order to go to the Gentiles, and they were the ones who should have had a better understanding of the Yahweh and his plan of redemption for the world as spoken through the law and the prophets in order to teach the Gentiles. And though the Jews continuously rejected the gospel, they were and are never excluded from salvation. Rather, the church is called to go to them in order to bring them back into the fold. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans 9, 10, and 11, when he makes the point that the Jews rejected the gospel. Therefore, God has moved to the, the Gentiles. And that they're able to continue the gospel because they've been grafted into the original tree of Israel. But he makes the point that Israel is only in time out. It's the best phrase I've ever been able to come up with to explain. They're not really it now, but they're not left behind and replaced either. They're in time out. But he goes on and makes the point that if they rejected the gospel and chose not to follow the will of God and could be put in time out and transitioned to for time to the Gentiles in the church, then that means that you too, Gentiles, could reject it and walk away from God. And God will move away from you and put you in time out and go back to the Jews or another people group. Meaning that he's not done with the Jews permanently. They're in time out. They'll be brought back. And just because we're it now, it for lack of a better phrase, it doesn't mean that we'll always be it. And it doesn't mean that he can't go back to them when we mess up big time. All these things make it clear that God is not done with the Jews. They're just chosen to put themselves. It's kind of like sometimes the daughter's like, I'll say you need to go cool down and you'll go there. You're not in trouble, but you need to calm down. Calm down. You can't be with us right now yelling and screaming like that. When you go and calm down, then when you're ready to come back down, most of the time when I put my girls in timeout, I make it, they can come out whenever they want. They just have, they can't come out acting like that anymore. When they're ready to be a part of the family, they can come back out and then we'll talk. Or a lot of times I'll go up to them. And the idea is the Jews can come back out of time out whenever they want. Whenever they want. And though the Jews continuously rejected the gospel, they were and are never excluded from the salvation. Rather, the church is called to go to them in order to bring them back into the fold. The spread of the gospel was made possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit, who emboldened and gifted the believers to preach the gospel courageously and eloquently. They never passed up an opportunity to share the gospel, even in the face of all kinds of opposition. And when their own survival was at risk, the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowered them to spread the word, and nothing can stop the word of Yahweh. Thus, the ending of Acts, and the way that it ends, is saying this. The same Holy Spirit that was working in them, and the ways that it was working in them, is working in you and I. The same power that came upon them at Pentecost is the same power that comes upon you when you accept Christ. And that power that emboldens 
and empowers them to go out and do miracles and lay hands and speak in tongues and raise people from the dead or preach an incredibly eloquent message that you did not work on. Not that God is saying you can be lazy and just eat your bonbons and when you're ready to go, the Spirit will do everything. It's the same Spirit that is in you to continue the gospel. And the same mission that the Holy Spirit had to go to Jews and Gentiles, to rich and poor, free and slave, man and woman, all ethnicities, sick and healthy, regardless of social status, Jew and Gentile, is the same people group that you're supposed to go as well. And the same way that it doesn't end with the spread of the gospel, with the death of or the end of Peter and Paul and Philip and Stephen and Paul and Barnabas and Mark's ministries, it doesn't, it continues with you as well. And it doesn't end with you either. And in the same way, nothing, no power in all the Roman Empire, no force of nature could stop the word of God. It can't stop it in our day either. And so I believe one of the major reasons that Luke acts in so abruptly, that acts in so abruptly, is to make the point that the acts of the Spirit are still at work today. In every way. That doesn't mean we retire it. It doesn't mean we model ourselves exactly the way that the early church did it. But it does mean that the same God with the same power and the same mission and the same ways that he works outside the box and never the way that you expect it is at work in us today. And so the most major application of this is 2,000 years plus, we are still in the book of Acts. The book may be closed, but the work of the Spirit is still going. And that's exactly what Paul's writings and Peter and James and John are all making in all their writings. That we have been called to be a kingdom of priests, to spread the gospel. To this I would say that wherever you are in your own personal life and where we are in politically and economically in our countries of America and Canada and China or wherever you're from. And no matter how much it feels like the modern day Babylon Roman Empire is beating down on us or how much the chaos of the sea, metaphorically or literally, is beating down on you or the poisons of the viper are working through your lives, nothing can stop the word of God. You may come to an abrupt ending like Stephen, but what you did and what you said will continue to go on and impact people and have and will make a difference for eternity. And so that is the message of Acts, is that there really is nothing that the world can throw at us to stop us or accuse us of some crime. And there is nothing. You can do the same things. Now, will God do all these same things in every single person? I don't know. But can he? Yes, this is the book of Acts. And the Spirit is at acting within you. Lord, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the amazing God that you are. I thank you that you are a God that was and is and is to come. Unlike any other God, any other being in the universe. And therefore your work 
was and is and is to come. Your spirit and your being and your power was and is and will be in all of us. And I pray that we can look to this book and not in name it, claim it, we are going to do it because by goodness we can kind of a way. But as surrendering and submitting to you that if you want us to do it, then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know you can. And when you say act, and when you say speak, and when you say heal, then we know we can because that's who you are. I pray that we would be open to your voice and open to your words and open to your leading. And then at no time we would say, oh, that can't happen anymore. Or, oh, you don't do it that way. Or they have to do it in this order first. Or I don't know if I'll be able to do that. They're so violent. They're so powerful. They're so scary. That we would be able to learn from this book that the answer is yes, Lord. Send me. Here I am. And in Isaiah chapter 6, even if we don't see immediate fruit and they walk away, then yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. And we will trust that if you're calling us, that it's still accomplishing some kind of purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.